this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson River? He had done everything there is to do in an airplane. He was even a trainer of other pilots, yet he had never had the opportunity to land an airplane on the Hudson River. He had one shot at greasing that landing and he nailed it. And when it comes to selling your business, you've got one shot. One shot to make sure you punch above your weight when you go to sell your company. One shot to make sure you don't make some of the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they sell their business. That's why I wrote the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for anyone looking to sell their company. You can get it along with some gifts for my listeners at builttosell.com slash selling. You know, I had a conversation over the holidays I thought I'd share with you. I was describing the pros and cons of a professional education with a friend of mine. And he was making the argument that, you know, the, the really amazing jobs come from going to a great school and, and, you know, getting a great job at a big company or a great job in a, you know, big professional services organization, one of the big four accounting firms or the big consulting firms, the big investment banking houses. And I was making the point that I, I actually don't think that on a risk-adjusted basis is the best way to create wealth. I, I think, you know, first of all, that kind of income is obviously usually taxed as income, so at 50% rates. And furthermore, I, I think there's actually a whole lot more financial independence to be gained by finding a quiet little corner of the world and owning the majority of a profitable company. And my next guest, Anthony Frakia, did just that. He built a little benefits consulting business. These are companies that sell insurance effectively to small, mid-sized businesses. Not a, not a very sexy business, a dozen employees, two and a half million in revenue, but it was run really, really well. As Anthony will tell you, he built it up so that his EBITDA margins were in the neighborhood of 60% on that two and a half million. He ultimately went to sell the company and got around eight times EBITDA. You do the math and you let me know which you think is the better way to financial independence. Here to tell you his entire story is Anthony Fracchio. Anthony Fracchio, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. John, how are you doing? It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great. So Altruist Benefit Consulting, how did you get into this business? Sounds like it was a family business. Yeah, so there's a story about that. Um, you know, my um, it was insurance brokerage group that I started with my father, uh, Robert, back in 2002. So previous to that, um, my dad had Italian. My dad, I'm 100% Italian. So, you know, I was born in the 70s. My dad had Italian restaurants his whole life. And if uh, your listeners know anything about two two groups, right, Greeks and Italians with restaurants, is they start their kids working at an early age. <laughs> so my dad uh, started me working at about 10 years. I've been working nonstop since I was probably 10 years old in the restaurants. So when I graduated school, I worked in the consulting world 
for now called Cap Gemini. Um, at the time, it was Ernst and Young. My dad got out of the uh, the restaurant business, got involved in this as a broker. He was a lifetime entrepreneur. He's always been self-employed. He kind of figured it out. When I was tired of the corporate world, he's like, hey, you should check out the model on this in this market, which I did. Um, I joined forces with him in 2002. And um, we initially focused on the personal or individual market um, and primarily health insurance. We grew that client base substantially over the first five years. Um, and then around that time, uh, one of the major carriers here in Michigan was pushing, pushing some state legislation that if passed would have impacted our revenue numbers by about 40 to 60% in the wrong direction. And that was a bit of a wake up call for us. Um, we had all our eggs in one basket, so to speak. So we diversified the markets we participated in to kind of hedge against future leg legislation in any specific market. And that's when we spread it out to Medicare-based products as well as employee and employer group-sponsored coverage as well. So you shifted the model to then start working with businesses to give, sell them effectively health insurance programs. Is that right? Correct. Basically consulting and structuring employee benefit packages. We started kind of in the, the small group space, which would be like, you know, as low as 10 employees, maybe as much as 50 and then gradually built that up once we kind of got our feet wet in that market. And I think our largest group client now is, is, is probably around 700 employees. We've got, you know, all ranges of, of staff size there as clients. And what's the business model? I mean, do you get paid a consulting fee like hourly or do you get the commission yep. when you sell the program? Like, how does that work? It's a great question. So um, our model, I guess, is kind of a hybrid of sorts for this specific sector. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. There, there's a few paths to follow in this business. First path, you could just be an individual producer, right? That means you're a one-man show. You go out, you get a license, you contract with the carriers of your choice, you write business, you get paid a commission that's set by the carrier. So that's kind of entry point, right? You can then become an agency. It's kind of similar to the individual producer path, but now you might have a small office with a few staff members helping you do outreach, marketing, maybe some bookkeeping, and maybe you have a another licensed agent or two that all under right underneath one agency contract. Um, and then you have what we are, which is a, which is a general agency. Um, this builds up that agency model on a much larger scale. So we would have a larger internal office. We've got an internal staff of about 12. Um, some of those are licensed, some are not. We've got an, a, a captive agent staff of about 10. And this allows us to go to these carriers and actually demand and get higher commission rates because we're aggregating that production and we're providing more value to the carrier. Then what we do, John, is we take that higher commission and we can essentially operate as a wholesaler. So this allows us to go out and recruit independent agents all across the state, across the country, really, because we can take that delta, right? If you were an individual agent, just John Warlow and Associates making, let's say, 5% commission, we'd get nine. I can go to you, John, and say, John, hey, listen, I see you're kind of doing this all on your own. We can offer you some sales training, some marketing, some leads, some back office support. And if you hit certain numbers, I can actually split that difference with you. So if I get nine, you get five, that leaves me with four. I can share with you a couple more points and actually give you more commission 
than you'd make on your own. And so that's where we're at. And we've now got about 300 agents in that channel um, just in the state of Michigan alone. And, and your revenue source then is solely commission-based. You're not also charging the client, the business itself. Just want to be clear. Correct. I, I can tell you it's, it's 100%. Sort of commission, and those commissions, yeah. as I understand them in insurance, there's a tail to them. Like it's not just a one-off commission. There's it's an annuity stream. As long as that client holds the policy, am I getting that right? Absolutely, it's a residual revenue business. So every time a client pays their premium, a small portion of that goes to us. So we have a we have a captive book of clients internally, and that's our. Medicare under 65 and our employer clients that we have directly, but then we also aggregate the sales of those 300 other producers across the state and generate revenue that way. Got it. You mentioned before we hit record that you bought your dad out. Can you talk a little bit right. about what precipitated that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, between probably 2014 and 2015, uh, our focus, meaning my father and I, we we had different we had a different focus, right? It was quite different with respect to where I wanted to take the business. I had been in at that point for you know, gosh, ten, twelve years, and I was in this aggressive growth mode. Um, my father was in his early seventies at the time and was more comfortable. I mean, the business was doing good. I'm not going to come, you know, nothing to complain about. We had we were making revenue, we were covering our expenses, we were pocketing basically all of our commissions, and the business that we were generating. The revenue we were generating from from the agent channel was effectively paying our expenses, so it was doing well. And he didn't really had he wasn't incredibly motivated to kind of go on that aggressive growth journey with me. So we had a number of concern or discussions around this challenge, and eventually agreed on a buyout where I would purchase 100 of his, 100 of his shares to take full control of the business back in um, 2015. And how did you structure that buyout, Anthony? At that time, um, at that time, the multipliers in our business were much, much smaller. Um, and really, my dad's, my father's agreement, and and our agreement was we always own our own personal production, and we split revenue that the agency develops. Um, 50-50, right? So whatever my father developed in his personal book, whatever I developed in my personal book, those were off the table, right? If there is any ever a point where he bought me out or I bought him out, we'd always walk with our clients and the and the full revenue that that generated. So when we took that out, um, my father's production and my production was was easily 60 to 70% of the total revenue of our company. So it was really just a buyout of that remaining 30%. And the way we structured that was um, uh, kind of a lump sum upfront payment. And then he wanted me just to kind of, for tax purposes, pay him a, a set amount over the next eight years as just kind of a residual revenue coming in on a monthly basis. Got it. That makes sense. And what multiplier did you use for that 30%? that was sort of agency revenue? Did you use a multiple of revenue or a multiple of profit? Like how did you place a value? We used a multiple, we used a multiple of revenue back then. I think it was about two and a half. It was a quite a while ago, but I think it was about two and a half to three uh, multiple mm -hmm. on revenue. Got it. And, and that makes sense because it's recurring revenue and it's got a tail yep. to it as you referred to it. Got it. So, you're kind of applying a multiple two and a half to three. You paid him out over eight years. He kept his share. Now, interestingly, what did he do with his 
share because I'm assuming though, as those clients renewed, he would get this annuity stream. Did he sort of leave the business entirely, or did he kind of just wind down slowly? No, man, this guy's this guy's still selling day in day out today. You know, whatever six seven years later, he's still he's still helping clients. He's focused mainly on Medicare because he's obviously a Medicare beneficiary himself. And you know, it's one of those. This is one of those industries and those businesses that's very well suited for kind of a retirement business. You know, he he can work as much or as little as he wants. He can throttle up or throttle down as he chooses to. Um, he and my my stepmother love to travel so they can both work remotely wherever he's at. And he's loving life, man. He's putting in probably, you know, and on the downtime, 20-ish hours a, a week. And when open enrollment comes at the end of the year, he's probably working more full time. And it, it keeps him, it keeps his brain working. It keeps him active. He loves it. Back in 2015, if you can kind of cast your mind back there, yeah. what impact did this buyout have and the, the conversations you wanted to grow, him wanting to kind of take it easy? Like what impact yeah. did that have on your relationship personally? Um, you know, we were we were toying around with that conversation, John, for years leading up to that. And I think it was getting to the point where um had we not been able to come to a um, an agreement on that, I was getting courted by colleagues in in our market here in Michigan to come not work for them but work with them, meaning take a take an equity position because of some of the work I had been doing. I had become very involved um, in the Affordable Care Act. I was doing a lot of speaking engagements at the time. I was digesting every piece of information I could and. And that was kind of the leverage was, hey, you know, I'd love to kind of do this right. Um, but if it's a no, meaning, you know, you won't let me buy you out, then I'm going to have to, you know, entertain maybe making a move myself. Because I just, we were so, we were in completely different phases of life. Neither of us were wrong. We were just in different phases of our lives where I was in my, you know, my mid thirties looking to grow and he's in his early seventies looking to chill, you know? Yeah. It's one of those things that we talk a lot about in particular with less father and son relationships with more partners in a business, especially if there's a shotgun clause in place where, you know, it's a good idea that both of you are at reasonably the same points in life, reasonably the same wealth kind of brackets so that one doesn't have disproportionate kind of leverage over the other in a shotgun. Now, to be clear, you had a pre-existing approach to valuation. You did not have a shotgun with your dad. Am I getting that correct? Not at all. No. And, and, and I want to also preface by saying, you know, working with family, especially when it's a parent, it poses its challenges. And, and I'm not saying that he and I didn't butt heads from time to time or, you know, pull the dad card on me when there's a decision that needs to be made. But at the end of the day, you know, we were 50, 50 partners. I think we did a good job um, respecting that component of our agreement. Um, and, you know, everything, everything went very smoothly. There were no hiccups. There were no challenges. You know, he's my dad. I love him. I'm his son. He loves me. And, and we worked out a, a deal that worked out great for both of us. So let's bring it forward then to the ultimate sale uh, that you just consummated. What triggered yeah. your decision to sell after having reasonably recently bought your dad out? Kind of leading up to that sale, I, I kind of did, you know, the, the years between buying my father out and getting to the sale, we did some, did some serious, serious work on this business. Um, I was just like a line 
And once that happened, um, strategically and aggressively over the next three to four years, we just went at the market. I enlisted the help of a business coach. Um, his name's Dr. Fadi Baradihi. This guy I have a tremendous amount of respect for in our area. He came from this industry. And, and with his guidance over those next three to four years, John, we grew our gross revenue by over 85%. We grew our gross pop profit by 100%. And most importantly, we grew our bottom line revenue by 600%. And I wasn't even focused on prepping the business for a sale at that point. I was just very um, emphatic about making the operation more efficient and reducing expenses as much as possible. So what did you get the business up to when you decided to sell? Like, where were you kind of revenue, profitability, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Revenue, like right before the sale, um, bottom line revenue was was between, I think, about 1.3 and 1.5 million. When you say bottom line, you mean, you mean profitability? EBITDA. Yep. I mean, I mean, net, yep. Net revenue. So, somewhere in the, in the 1.3 to 1.5 range. Yep. Got it. Got it. That's helpful. And on the top line? Top line, I think we were just at about two and a half, about 2.5 million. Two and a half million. Great. This is a profitable business. I'm <laughs> just looking it, at it your is. EBITDA margins against your revenue. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like I think with, with a little bit, yep. I think with a little bit more conditioning, I think when we got through final financial diligence with my parent company, I think our margins on EBITDA were just under 60% with some, wow. with some recasting and some things of that nature. Got it. Got it. That's super helpful. And, and I mean, you must've been running pretty lean in the office to have, oh, yeah. you know, total expenses like around 800 grand. I mean, with 10 or 12 employees, it, it was pretty lean in the office. Am I getting that right? Incredibly lean. Um, I, you know, I had a colleague in this space who was around the same revenue number as me, working with a, with a broker to kind of package his business and start to do some diligence. They, he was telling me at about the same size, we should have theoretically had about four or five more employees based on revenue than we actually had. But my model was always, I've got a great, my, my team here is family to me. Um, I've got a great relationship with them. And our method has always been, we're going to work uh, and we're going to bust our butts. And if we get to a point where we're, you know, getting exacerbated or feel like we need help, you guys come to my office and tell me because I have a very strong work ethic and, and my team does as well. And I just kind of put it on them like, Hey, if you need help, let me know. And we'll, we'll go there. But I think the, the culture here is one of, you know, trusting each other, working our tails off and, and, and growing and, and everybody embrace that. Got it. So you're two and a half million top line, a million, three million, five, somewhere in there. Bottom, uh, Again, maybe you were getting at it, but I must have missed it. What triggered you to want to yep. sell? Well, it, it got to the point. So there's there's a couple reasons, right? First reason is time. You know, I've been doing this work for almost 20 years. Um, it's an intensely competitive market here in Michigan, and I just I I wanted to have an outlet where I could maybe take a step back, focus on specific things, and not the entire business every day all day. Um, and so that was one thing. I guess the other, I have to say, uh, John, is there was the regulatory environment. Um, this business was a lot of fun before the Affordable Care Act came into place. Um, 
our industry has now become one of, if not the most overly regulated markets on the planet. And I'll tell you, um, my political affiliation is that of a conservative libertarian. So increased government involvement for me is always just a huge turnoff. And it, and it just, as you know, when the government gets involved, they don't just get involved and hit the pause button. It just, they grow and grow, their reach grows and grows. And it just became just more work for, for, you know, more work for us and for our team. Revenue got cut. And so I just, I, I kind of, that, that was one thing that was really frustrating to me. Um, mm -hmm. The other, the other reason was the acquisition market was hot. I mean, it really, it went, I observed acquisitions in our market going from about three to four times EBITDA, you know, around the time I bought my dad out to eight to 10 times within the span of, you know, five years. And, and I think that's due to a few reasons. I think there was a growing agency to agency acquisition appetite over the past three years, meaning agencies that have set up or brokerages that have set up successful and efficient processes, right? They realize they can find these underperforming agencies, purchase them at a discount and tune them up by incorporating them into a more efficient model. And that's just an, it's a, it's a, it's a simple turnaround. Um, and if you're really good at what you do and you're running very efficiently, that's a really easy path to grow. Um, Interest rates have always have also remained relatively low over the past decade, um, which has attracted private equity. Private equity, as you as you probably know, they love these residual revenue model businesses. Um, the insurance model is probably on the top of that list, specifically with health insurance and specifically in the environment we're in now with the COVID pandemic. People are more reluctant to drop their health insurance than they are, you know, their HBO Max subscription. So they're much more sticky. Got it. That's super helpful. So there was sort of an internal and an external motivator. Internal, you know, you'd been in the business for 20 years, regulatory environment was getting worse and you saw it getting worse on the horizon still. And then there was the external factor of, it was just a hot market. And I'm assuming you were getting approached then? Like, what was that? Yeah. Like, were, were you getting sort of unsolicited reach out? Yeah, man, my phone was ringing. Um, you know, like I, as I was explaining to you earlier, it's a very it's a it's a small world here in Michigan in this market, and once you start to inch up to the top of the food chain in terms of revenue in a in a, in a specific sector, people start calling. You know, our growth from 2014 to 2018 positioned us as one of the top producing brokerages in the individual market. So my my phone started to ring. And and how do, how was that? Because I think right now a lot of our listeners are having. Unsolicited pitches on LinkedIn, on their cell phone, on email—they're—they're they're getting yeah. approached, and yeah. I think, uh, you know, as we've talked about on the show before, getting too far into the conversation without being kind of proactive can be a, yeah. a bit of a mistake. So, like, what? How did you handle those first few, out, those first few phone calls? Well, I'm not going to lie. I was super pumped about it. I was like, oh my God, someone, someone actually wants to buy what I've built. This is awesome. You know, so that's, that's kind of the first thing uh, when you get that first call and you get excited, you don't really, you know, do a whole lot of homework. You just start talking to these people. And next thing you know, you're, you're going down the rabbit hole. So I'd say before did that I ultimately, it did, it absolutely, it absolutely did. And when you say um, going down the rabbit hole, what, what, what do you mean by that? Like how, like you just, what exactly do you mean like, by that? Yeah, you're you're being guided down a path by by a much larger organization that's done this 10, 20, 
30 times over. So this is old hat for them. And you're just being guided down this path sometimes without really knowing where, where you're at. You think you're just having conversations, but they're gathering strategically um, information from you. So we start talking, they become more interested. I provide more information and all of a sudden we're, you know, we're two or three months into this conversation and we kind of hit a wall because they basically their intention was to dissolve everything we had done, basically grab our clients, wrap them into their model. And the name was gone. The brand was gone. And, and my team's um, livelihoods were in jeopardy. And I was like, that's a, that ain't, that ain't going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that to my team. And we've spent a lot of time building this brand. So after that stumble, right, which was the first call, um, I decided we, we probably have to have some non-negotiables in place from that first conversation. So we're not wasting anybody's time going forward, you know? Got it. And so I, I want to get to what those non-negotiables were for you, because I think that's a great yeah. idea for everybody to have. But oh, before we go yeah. there, um, so you got fair, you, you got reasonably far down the path with one acquirer. How much information were you sharing with them? Like, were you sharing your top line revenue, your net profit margins? Like, were you getting into that level of detail with them? Absolutely. And we kind of stopped short when, when they wanted to know, like in our business, they want to make sure that you're not getting, you know, 30, 40% of your revenue from one group client, right? Because if that group client goes away, you know, that's a huge impact on your, on your bottom line. So we got right up to the point where we were kind of packaging um, our client information uh, to show how that revenue was broken down over the three markets that we were participating in, right? Individual, non-Medicare, Medicare, and group. So we were right up to that line where we were kind of packaging that information up where we had that conversation. And that's where we hit the pause button. And they had they shared with you before you hit pause any sort of valuation metrics that they were prepared to pay? Um, we were discussing um, multipliers at that point, and this was this was easily three years before I sold my business. So I think we were entertaining around between four and six um, times EBITDA, EBITDA. Yeah. EBITDA. And, and that's kind of where the talks were, but obviously, as you know, and, and I'll, and I'll tell your listeners the same before you firm that up, right. You can give a range, but before you firm that up, you've got to get a bit more detail on where that revenue is coming from. Got it. Got it. So they're, they're, you're having sort of verbal conversations in and around the four to six times, but yeah, your reaction to that presumably was, was reasonably positive or you would, you would have oh. hit pause earlier. I'm assuming. Oh, absolutely. No, it was very positive. Um, I was, like I said, I was excited about it, but you know, once the kind of emotional reaction to that journey kicked, uh, subsided and, and the, uh, you know, the brain kicked in, I was like, okay, I, I think I see where this is going. Had a very upfront conversation. They were good. These are good guys. You know, they weren't, they weren't devious by any means. They were always upfront. I wasn't asking the right questions and, uh, decided to start asking those questions. And that's when I realized we had to kind of pull out. What are the questions that you were not asking that you should have been asking? I was not paying attention to what their intentions were with this business post-sale. I was, that was not on my radar. Got it. And so what questions would you, or what questions did you miss? Like, as you think about it retroactively, I get the fact that you were not necessarily asked, like, but I'm trying to think like, what questions do you wish you'd asked? I would have asked, um, 
you know, number one, you know, when you're going, and this was an agency to agency or brokerage to brokerage purchase, right? It was a much larger player in the market, predominantly heavy on the group side, right? Revenue was probably 10 times mine. So my, I would have asked, are, are you looking to basically acquire our client base, keep on key people and, you know, you know, subject the remainder of my staff to redundancy, right? Are you, are, are my, is my staff going to lose their jobs after this? You know, I, you presume may have people- I presume a lot of the, the sort of private equity value proposition, and you sort of alluded to it earlier. You're like a lot of private equity groups look at this and say, if we, if we can buy this book of business, first of all, there's recurring revenue, but second of all, with our expertise and our scale, we can, we can probably squeeze out more margin. Uh, yep. I'm looking at your business and, uh, and, and just the work you did with your business coach. A lot of those efficiencies would have already been captured, I'm guessing, because you're so efficient already. Yet yeah. still, they, they, you, you had sort of taken advantage of some of those benefits or some of that, 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 uh, that juice, if you will, even though they were still interested in what you had to offer. Yeah. And when it came down to it, they just, they, they couldn't give me a definitive answer on that um, with respect to my staff. And I was like, listen, if, if they're not safe and, and that's not documented and we can't come to terms on that being in the agreement, then I'm, then I'm not going to move forward. Got it. So it sounds like you had a number of non-negotiables that you came up with as a result of this kind of failed conversation. What were the non-negotiables? Yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of, you know, like, okay, if I'm going to do this again, I'm going to be very upfront and honest with the, you know, with, with the terms of, of, of how we can go about this. And, and if I'm going to engage in a conversation, the first one was I wanted to keep the brand. Um, we have been doing this in the state of Michigan for 20 years. We've developed a great brand, um, great brand recognition. We had, you know, thousands and thousands of individual clients, primarily in Southeast Michigan. So I wanted to keep the brand. Um, I wanted the ability to stay on and work as long as I chose to. I didn't want there to be like, hey, you're on your high overhead. Um, you have to go after we kind of figure out the magic or whatever you bring to the table. Once we get that code, you know, we'll, we'll kind of put you on a path of, of you know, retiring you out of it. So I wanted to be able to stay on at my discretion. That was the second one. The third one was my staff had to be safe. Um, I had a great argument for that too, John, based on what you just said and what we discussed is we're running incredibly efficient. So I had a good argument to make that case. And quite frankly, I'm like, you know, this business doesn't run without this team. So if your intentions are to gobble up our clients and slowly, you know, slowly edge out the team, it's not going to serve you well. And then finally, I had, you know, after a couple years and, and paying more attention to the market, um, you know, knowing people that have gone through the acquisition process and seeing these multipliers go up, I had a, I had an EBITDA range that I wanted to be in. So that was my fourth one is I wanted to be, I wanted to be somewhere between seven and 10 times EBITDA. Um, and, and I was pretty firm on that. Got it. So keep the brand, you want the discretion to work or not, uh, keep the staff safe and EBITDA in the seven to 10 range. That's, yep. and that became your sort of upfront, these are the non-negotiables. So let's make sure we're on the same page before we go too far into this conversation. Is that, is that right? 100%. Yep. And, and that doing, taking that step, uh, it, it saved me a lot of time. It saved people who were calling me a lot of time. 
And it really started to, after I think I had maybe, I had one more conversation after that, John, we're up front. Um, we, I had that discussion. We started to go down. They, in, you know, in theory, they were okay with it. I'd say maybe a few weeks in, there was a cup there. The component of the brand was a problem for them. So we dipped out. Um, I had another conversation after that. So a third one where it ended after the first conversation. Um, we put it in there. They, again, were kind of like the original one where they, they just wanted our client list. Um, and they had no intention of, of maintaining anything that we had built. So those were probably three conversations I had within a year, I'd say within 12 to 18 months. Um, about two years before the company that I ended up selling to gave me a call. Fantastic. I guess some people listening to this would 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 push back, and I'd be curious to know what you would say. Which is, you know, by being so uh, demanding, if you will, like I, you know, if you want to buy me, you got to keep my brand. You got to let me work or not, depending on you know, like whether I want to work. You know, double mm -hmm. digit, multiple, like a lot of people probably would hear those up front in a first conversation and get turned off and say, well, this guy's totally unreasonable. Did, yeah. Do you feel like you you walked away from some good opportunities because you were so firm up front? It's possible. You know, it, it's possible. And, and, and at the time, I mean, I know I was, I know that there was an, there was an expiration date, John, on, on how long I really wanted to do this, but heck, I mean, I'm two years, a little over two years from the sale so we're talking about five to six years ago. I, it was really kind of like when you have a house that you love and you're like, eh, I'm going to throw out the market and I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't really have to sell it. I don't really need to, but I'm going to throw it on the market and kind of see what happens. That's kind of where I was at at that point. It was like, listen, I know we've got a very efficient business. I've gone to the market. I've talked to colleagues. I know our margins are good. I know we're efficient. We've got a lot of things going. It's incredibly profitable. I own it a hundred percent. I really wasn't at the point where I was like, I, I really got to start talking about how I want to get out of this. So I think if I was further down that path, John, or maybe a couple years past that, I would have been much more flexible on it. But at that time, it was like, hey, you guys are calling me, right? I'm not. I'm not reaching out to anybody. My phone's ringing. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna take the the the, the line. I'm gonna take and. If it doesn't work for you, I okay, appreciate the call, but we'll, we'll move forward. Got it. Okay. I want to dig in a little bit further because one of these strikes me as somewhat curious. I, I get the EBITDA multiple, totally understand that. Keeping your staff safe. I mean, they're the ones who brought you to the dance, get that totally. Stay on work, feel really understood there. I mean, you're still a young guy when you were thinking about the sale, like in your 40s, presumably early 40s. So I get the desire to want to work. The brand one though is trips me up a little bit. So what was yep. it about having your brand you know, perpetuate itself beyond your tenure as its owner? What like what was it about that that was important to you? Well, I mean, besides being an only child and being stubborn, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was just I, you know, I think I'll tell you what, I'll I'll, I'll let you know this that if there was one of the four, I would probably be more flexible with that was it because it really depended on who we were talking to. If it was a brokerage to brokerage buy, that's really not going to fly. So if I were, if someone were to say, Hey, listen, we want to keep you on your staff is safe. Your range of your multiplier on EBITDA is, is, is fair. But at some point we're going to need to roll you in 
to our our brokerage that that conversation never really happened it wasn't that was never the stumbling block the stumbling block that we kind of came up with multiple times was really the staff so i would I, I would give on that a little bit john to be honest had that been the only the only concern you know from the acquirer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i was also i was proud of what we did you know I, I was proud of the work we did i was i was really proud of the business that we built and you know, we started to get some really good recognition and I, I just didn't, I, that was just one thing. Like if we're going to talk about my wish list, I'm going to throw my wishes on it. And that, that was one of them. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that your business was not your surname, right? I, uh, you know, yeah. I, uh, I'll tell you years ago, this goes back 25 years. I, I had a, uh, 20 years, I had a research company that, that bore my surname and I sold it to a, a publicly traded company. And I remember when they wanted to have the conversation about getting rid of the name. And I'm like, get that thing off of your letterhead. Like, I want it gone. Like, I don't want my family name in anywhere in, in your company when I don't control it. Like, that's my namesake. Yeah. That goes well beyond my company. That's now my reputation in the marketplace. Get rid of it. If you don't own it, I don't want to be part of it. And they thought yeah. I was going to react totally differently. They thought I was going to be... Uh, you know, very, you know, very concerned about maintaining and perpetuating, perpetuating the brand. <laughs> In fact, I was like, get rid of it. But again, that was, that was probably more because it. my name it. was, you know, my name was in it. Oh yeah. And and I feel the same way. I think if it would have been like Anthony Frocky and associates, I probably would have said, yeah, that makes way more sense. Get rid um, of the name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Get rid of the name. But it's just, like I said, Back then, I was just kind of, you know, I was being courted. And so I figured I had a bit of leverage to do that. And it that but that was never the component of those non-negotiables that was under question that made those first three conversations not come to fruition. It was it really evolved around the staff and them trying to, you know, basically say in a kind way, we can't guarantee they're all going to stay on. Yeah. Yeah. I think I get the non-negotiables now. Thank you for going there with the brand. Yeah. Let's go deeper now to the next stage because you started to have these conversations. At what point, I mean, were you were you continuing to act as your own sort of broker? Did you hire an M&A professional to shop your company? Like, well, how did that go? I was, it's funny you say that. I actually started, right? So a colleague of mine um, met a great group, Marsh McLennan. They're, they're a nationwide outfit and, and they do a lot of consulting in this space because they just have incredible relationships you know, nationwide. So not only can they tune you up for a sale, they have a, a potential suitors that are looking to acquire agencies. So I had a colleague go down that path. We had a conversation. He's like, you're going to really like this guy. So I started talking with this gentleman and, um, you know, we started kind of getting into it. We were just about to kind of get a contract together for me to bring him on. And, and that's when I got the call um, from the company that would, uh, from my parent company that would obviously ultimately end up acquiring us where we had a few conversations. I gave him my non-negotiables. They're like, dude, we're good with all that stuff. So I was like, oh, wow. And I was very cautious with that because I didn't know if they were just saying that to kind of get me to sign the LOI. And then, you know, maybe, maybe gently walk back some of those, but they never did. And so when the company is Reliance, right? Reliance Global. Yeah. And so when the gentleman I was kind of talking with reached back out, I was like, Hey, you know, I, you know, we didn't, we didn't get too much into it. It just a couple preliminary conversations. I think we had lunch once. Um, I said, Hey, listen, um, 
you know, I've, I've got a, a, a really good fit here that I'm going to, you know, cautiously go down this path with. Um, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, you know, you and I are, you know, good to move forward. And you guys, you know, Reliance was everything they said they were going to be. And I'll tell you, two years out, um, nothing has changed with them from, a, you know, from an integrity standpoint. Um, I, I admire their discipline. Um, I admire their work ethic. These guys work hard. They're honest. They're good human beings. And I, I couldn't be happier. Okay. So let's, let's get into this deal. Uh, so they, you know, they approached you, you said, you know, these are my non-negotiables. How did you approach EBITDA mar uh, multiple in that initial conversation? I mean, were you the, were you the first to kind of throw out the seven to 10, you know, range? Did they kind of come up with a number first? Like, how did you handle that? I, I gave them the range. I said, this is where I'd like to be. And I think because of some of the unique opportunities that we were able to secure here that nobody else really has, I think we had good standing to go out and, and make that request. And that's John. why I always, that's why, John, I always wanted to keep it as a range versus a, it's got to be at least this. I like giving a range because I thought it was fair and I had done my homework on them. I know that they had purchased agencies within that range prior to me. So I knew it wasn't out of bounds for them. Got it. So you give them the four non-negotiables, including the EBITDA range and, and their reaction is, yeah, that, you know, that, that, that's probably going to work with us. What was the next step in the process? So the next step was really coming to terms on how, you know, obviously the LOI, right? So we start talking about the LOI, the terms, what the earnout's going to be, what percentage of that buyout's going to be in cash, what's going to be, what, what percentage is going to be debt on their end, what percentage is going to be stock. They were publicly traded um, on the OTC market at that time. So that's really was the next step was starting to discuss um, the structure of the LOI. Got it. So let's just define some of these acronyms. LOI stands for letter of intent, non-binding usually, yeah. but it's effectively an agreement of principle with an acquirer. Yeah. Uh, and then OTC over the counter. Am I getting that correct? That yep, absolutely. Yep. Got it. And so uh, cash debt and, and stock, I get cash, I get stock, I don't get debt. So explain yep. that to me. Yep. I, I get like, cash. But <laughs> what do you mean by yeah. debt? I don't, I'm, not, I'm not following so, that. So this group had secured a line of credit from a, um, from a capital group that specifically participated in the insurance um, brokerage acquisition market. They're called Oak Street Funding. And all they do is provide capital for insurance agency and brokerage acquisitions. So my parent company had approached them basically saying, hey, we're looking to do a series of acquisitions in this sector and they wanted to basically see what they could get in terms of a line of credit so they weren't over leveraging themselves or depleting their cash reserves so when we say cash that's what they that was the cash that my parent company brought to the table out of their pockets right the part of that was also debt and when i say debt that was the line of credit that they had to pull from to kind of make that for me, it was it was all cash, right? For them, a portion of it was their money, a portion of it was from the line of credit. And why is that important to you? Like in most acquisitions, 
whether the acquirer funds it through cash on the balance sheet, debt they get from a bank, whatever, it, usually it's not part of the conversation. Was there something unique oh. about this deal that, that made it part of the conversation? No, it was really on their end, John. It, it wasn't okay. a request of mine. It didn't matter to me. Like you said, I mean, the, the, the money's going into my account. It's, 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 it's mine at that point. So I had no debt in it. I think that was just the way that they chose to structure it on their end, kind of using different methods to get to that number. Um, and so, and really, you know, with, with them, the higher the, the multiplier on EBITDA, the more they wanted to leverage stock. Obviously, it's a, it's a low cost way for a publicly traded company uh, to acquire somebody, right? It doesn't cost them as much as cash out of their pocket. So I think it was really, they were just looking to kind of spread out the tools that they had at their disposal to make the deal work uh, for that as well. And so what did you agree, you know, you, you'd said the, the range you were hoping to get was sort of seven to 10. Where did you guys end yep. up landing? We ended up at eight. Um, and that was structured as 80% um, up. So 80% upfront and 20% on a three-year earnout. Mm-hmm. Of that 80% upfront, 90% of it was cash. 10% mm-hmm. was stock. And it was immediately unrestricted. So that stock was ready to go. Um, and then the earnout of 20% was all company stock. And the way they structured that as part of the earnout was every year on the anniversary of the sale. So the sale was September 1st, 2020, 2019. So every September 1st, a third of those shares would become unrestricted for me to sell or hold or do whatever I, I want with. Got it. And, and I have I, I am completely ignorant about Reliance Global stock. How has the stock mm-hmm. performed over the years? It it was on the you know over the counter. It was you know effectively a penny stock. It was trading between, you know I think at I, I think at one point oh, it was about fifteen to thirty cents a share. It would oscillate. Um, I think over the counter shares are much more susceptible to short selling and and sure. chatter. So there was. There was some heavy mar- heavy movement there. Um, once they moved to the NASDAQ, which was this past February, they, they kind of came in low around the $5 range. They dipped a little bit because I think coming from the over-the-counter market to the NASDAQ, I think on the NASDAQ, and you'll probably agree with me here, there's a, there's a different type. You've got institutional investors or you've got large, like global, you know, gr- um, large global brokerages that are investing money for clients on the NASDAQ, not so much on the OTC market. Mm-hmm. So I think um, trying to get a technology they're working on off the ground, I think it stumbled a little bit, but now it's up, you know, it's up close to, I didn't check it today, but I know yesterday was close to eight, $8 a share. Great. So, so you've had a nice lift in, in the value of that. Did you yeah. end up selling your stock or did you hold it or combination? Well, it's an interesting story, right? So when you when you transition from one platform to the other, right, from the over-the-counter market to the NASDAQ, all the stock is frozen. So with that, when that first year anniversary came up, we couldn't do anything. They they couldn't unrestrict, they couldn't do anything. And the challenge that they had was when the SEC is evaluating your business for this transition, they were continuing to do acquisitions. Every time they did a new acquisition, it kind of bumped them a few months back in terms of diligence with the SEC. So they ultimately had to make a decision to kind of 
freeze on that until the transition was done because it was overshooting their target date to, to get to the NASDAQ. So in that first year, we couldn't do anything. This second year, however, obviously the transition was completed in February. So they just, they took the first two years of, of shares um, and unrestricted those. And, and for the moment right now, I'm holding them. Um, I'm going to kind of see where it's going to go, but um, I'll, I'll sell a little bit. My, my goal was probably liquidate at least a third, maybe two thirds of the shares, hold a third longer term, just because I'm, I'm, I'm heavily involved in real estate as well. And I'm, you know, I've got a group that I work with on that, that, you know, we can do pretty good with that money in the real estate market versus keeping it in the stock market. And with real estate, are, are you an active investor? Or are, you, are you sort of a, a limited partner in a, in a roll up of some sort? A little bit of both, right? So I've, um, you know, post sale, I, I kind of got involved in some um, asset acquisitions where I'm investing in um, different real estate opportunities as a means of recurring revenue in the future. These are properties that I can utilize when I choose to, and when I'm not, I can monetize them. And that's kind of the format I like. So uh, some people call them lifestyle assets with respect to real estate. For me, it's, you know, I've chosen some locations I really enjoy visiting. Um, and many of them have a team in place already that if I'm not there, they are marketing, renting, and doing all the work, taking a small split and, and, and sending, sending me money each month. I love that. Like I, I've heard of, you know, places in Utah where you can, you basically, you know, you that's buy actually a where one of them is. <laughs> oh, really? That's, and that, and you that's use it where you want, but when you're not, they put it in the rental pool and off you go. Off yep. You go. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of that. So I've, I've, I've done a number of those. I really enjoy it. Um, I'm getting better at it in terms of evaluating the opportunity and getting more into detail with uh, the agreements and especially like, you know, the condo regs and, and the, uh, the sale agreements. So I'm getting better at identifying, you know, which ones are good opportunities. And, and I enjoy that. Are you thinking, and, and I, I asked this because I, I think, you know, obviously you're, you're still a very young man in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things, and you've obviously become liquid, uh, which is fantastic at, at a young age. I think a lot of people who get to that point, um, you know, they stumble a little bit because, you know, they're, they're, it's not like your retirement age and, and you could just basically, you know, give your money to a, someone to, you know, buy some stocks for you and live off the dividends. Like most people are still wanting to do something at your age. And I'm curious to know, uh, as you think about the real estate investing, in particular, these lifestyle, you know, uh, opportunities, would you place the emphasis on lifestyle first and, and secondary on investment return? Or are you really thinking of them as business opportunities that have a little bit of a kicker? Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so to answer your question, I, I think with what I've done so far in that space, it's real estate opportunities with a kicker. I wouldn't turn down, you know, something in Detroit, for example, that is not a, you know, not a lot of people looking to take vacations to Detroit. I happen to love it, but, you know, I'm obviously biased. But if there was a great opportunity here with the right team, then I would look at that as purely an investment. I don't know if it'd be something I'd look to hold, but versus, you know, invest um, in a, you know, in a project, take my money out when it's done. So it's a little bit of both, but so far it's just, it's mainly been, you know, the investment model with a bit of a kicker. It's a place I like to go to 
that I have access to. And when I don't, it's a revenue source. I'm asking for very selfish reasons. So is there some sort of, <laughs> I'm like, how do I get in on this? Um, <laughs> is there some sort of, you know, like uh, marketplace where you can learn about deal flow in this area or is it all sort of private? Like how, how did you come to learn about these deals? Um, it's, you kind of just, when I, you know, when I look in spaces, I'll, you know, let's use Utah as an example. Um, you know, my girlfriend and I, she lives in Oregon. I live in Michigan and we've kind of decided that that's a good middle way for us. We both love the outdoors. I'm a big skier. So we've spent some time out there. Um, we found a great realtor in that area who knew it well and kind of really just looking around. I mean, you have with, with the internet, you have such good access to real estate professionals and, and you can evaluate that and vet them um, before you reach out and just say, Hey, here's my intention. I'm looking for opportunities where there's a team in place. I'm not, a, I'm not averse to managing these myself either. And in fact, John, I have the option with all these properties to get out of that agreement after a, a couple of years and do it myself. If I feel I can be more efficient at it. And so I like the idea of giving them, you know, a crack at it first, kind of evaluating how they perform and then maybe saying, hey, I'm going to give it a couple of years on my own. I can always go back to that model with them. And it's just identifying those opportunities. I think it's becoming more popular. So I think, um, and for some of these larger developers, like for example, the one in Utah is a, it's a condo in, in, a, in effectively a luxury resort in, in Park City. Mm-hmm. These developers like it because they're getting, they're doing this project. They are getting a lot of capital up front. And then what they're doing is that on top of that, they're taking a portion of they're still getting, you know, they're still getting rental revenue when they're renting these things out. So it's good for them and it, and it's good for the purchaser. So you just got to kind of look around, talk to people that are experts in that area who know developers who know that are getting into these spaces and start doing a little bit of digging. Super helpful. I want to go back and ask one final question about your deal and then we'll kind of wrap up. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your employees and a couple of things strike me as interesting. One, you were running a really lean team. A colleague had suggested that, you know, you probably should have three or four more full-time equivalents. So, you know, part of me is saying these, these, these dozen or so employees that you had, uh, you know, they're working 25% harder. <laughs> one way to interpret it is I'm sure they're more efficient as well, but one way to think about it is that they were probably working really, really hard. I wonder how you handled telling them that you had decided to sell the company. Yep. Yeah, that was, um, uh, I, it was, it was something that I struggled with, right? I didn't really know how to approach it. When, when I realized, you know, post sale, I was going to stay on and we've grown the business substantially, um, this year to date, uh, and I think September of this year, 70% ahead of where we were last year. And we were able to take on a few more staff members post-sale. I think it became more comfortable for me to have that conversation with them when I realized that I wasn't going anywhere. To be quite frank, had I not told them that I sold it, they would have no idea. <laughs> Nothing has changed. This relationship I have with Reliance, they're looking at what we're doing and they're like, you guys are doing great. What do you need from us to help, right? Where can we complement 
the work that you've already done. And by the way, keep doing what you're doing. Don't change anything. Just tell us where we can help and maybe accentuate what you're doing. When I realized that that's how this relationship was going to work out, it was really just, hey, guys, I got an offer. I, I couldn't not take it. But understand I'm not going anywhere. Understand you were all safe. That was a component of my deal was making sure you guys were protected. Um, I'm going to focus on some other components of the business. I'm not going to focus on every aspect of the business every day, but I'm here. I'm not going anywhere and I'm in the trenches with them. I mean, I'm no joke, John. During open enrollment, we run a call center and we field incoming calls from one of the major carriers here. I'm on the phones with my team. I've been on the phones with them for 60 days straight selling with them. I love it. So my, my involvement hasn't changed dramatically. I think it will evolve over time, but I think the fact that they see me here with them, I'm still pushing them. Um, they're still pushing me. I think it was an easy conversation to have. And I think they were happy for me. I guess some people, I'm glad to hear that. I guess some people may also hear this and wonder, okay, but why did you sell? If you were going to stay on, work the phones during open season, whatever, if you're prepared to do that, why not? I mean, and you're only in your 40s. Why not mm-hmm. keep it for another 20 or 30 years? Yep. I, because I know at some point my involvement is going to fall back a little bit. I don't know when that is, but there, you know, there's, there's other things I, I want to do with my time, you know, going forward in my life. I have a very strong um, passion for um, my charitable efforts. I started a charity uh, three years ago called Aspire, um, which is effectively a mentoring charity for, for young adults primarily high school students. So I want to, you know, I want to start to transition and do that work more. And I don't want to really, I didn't want to have to worry about um, finances when I chose to dedicate more of my time to that. And that was one of the main things. Um, I mean, quite a little sidebar when I, when I had the conversation with it, cause I work with high schools. So when I had a conversation with a school administrator um, about what I wanted to do and just, we both lit up because this administrator was super pumped about the idea. I knew at that point that that's what I was going to spend the rest of my life doing. And I wanted to put myself in a position to choose how and when I do that without worrying about the financial component or what I might be losing financially to do that work. Mm -hmm. What was your dad's reaction when you told him you'd sold? Um, It was funny because my stepmother who works for me as well, she just retired um, she was the one I was out, I was out in California hiking when I got this call and it was one of my, one of my sub agents, one of my independent agents who had sold to the same company reached out. And when she told me, Hey, this person wants to talk with you. I'm like, well, listen, can you have a conversation and see if it's you know really worth, do I have to talk to this person? Is it, is it an issue that he's having? Cause her role was to manage the agent channel. So she talks to him, she sends me a text. She's like, you need to call him. And that's when I found out. So she knew a little bit ahead of time. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, it, when it got to the point where we were in it, she and I were talking and it was like, yeah, I've got to, I've got to tell my dad that this is what's happening. He was very proud. I mean, he was very happy. You know, my dad, um, you know, has worked his whole life. He's, he's worked his tail off. He's still working. He's 78 years old. Um, he's still very active. And I think when he saw what we had done after I bought him out, I think it kind of came full circle to him. I think he understood better why I wanted to buy him out. 
um, why I was so anxious to, to get off and running and to be able to bring that to fruition and tell him that it was a proud day for me. And I think it was a proud day for him. Let's leave it there. Fantastic. I'm glad it, uh, it all worked out and, and you have one of the, uh, the happy stories in the, in the land of family businesses, because uh, as you know, there's Indeed. some less happy ones. So good to hear you guys have a great relationship. Where can people learn about Aspire um, and, and you? Tell us sort of how to get in touch with you if there are folks out there that uh, wanted to reach you yeah. or learn more about Aspire. Absolutely. Um, Aspire, uh, we have a website. It's Aspire, A-S-P-I-R-E, Detroit.org. We actually developed a curriculum from the ground up. Um, it was in response to what we were seeing in the youth demographic, um, that there was just a, a deficiency of what we consider to be basic but critical soft skills. So the charity, we teach a curriculum in high schools. Now, obviously, that's a challenge right now because of COVID. So sure. sometimes we're doing it remotely. Sometimes we're doing it in person, but I actually go in and teach a course that revolves around three main components, personal responsibility, financial responsibility, professional responsibility, personal responsibility deals with etiquette. Um, it deals with um, managing your reputation in person online. It deals with identifying and embracing a core value system. Um, the financial is just basic financial literacy. That's not really taught in these schools, right? Sure. We hope that parents sure. teach them. Sometimes children grow up in single parent households. They don't have the time um, or, the, or the experience to do that. So we teach some very basic financial literacy um, to these young adults. And then the professional is all revolving around how to separate yourself from your peers when it comes to getting a job, right? So we teach resume writing. We teach them how to inter re research the person that's interviewing them, the company that's interviewing them, how to set up a LinkedIn profile. We talk about, you know, sending handwritten thank you notes, just doing all these things that are, that no one's expecting from a high school person. Quite frankly, not a lot of people are expecting it from grown adults today. And so we're trying to get at these kids when they're younger, so they can start to develop these healthy habits going forward and really put themselves in a position where they are more marketable and have more control over what they do with their lives and have more options when it comes Fantastic. for them to enter that working world. That's such a, it's such a needed organization and someone should uh, reach out to you and take it nationally or internationally because it's such an incredible idea. We're working so Aspire, on that. Yeah, AspireDetroit.org. Yeah, and started in Detroit and we're looking to we're looking to grow it over time into different major cities. And it's Anthony Fracchia, F-R-A-C-C-H-I-A on LinkedIn, if I'm yes, correct sir. in that. Anthony, thank you for doing this. It's, uh, it's, it's been great, and I've really enjoyed it. John, I have as well, and I appreciate you having me on, man. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a blessing. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. 
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.